Hello, and welcome to another episode of Determination, Deliberation, and Dragons. Um, I'm very excited to introduce the author, Michael Barakiva. Barakiva? Barakiva. Okay. Um, so yeah, he, he is the author of this wonderful book called Hold My Hand. And I read it as part of a, a process of just trying to like purposely read more LGBTQ plus novels um, once like COVID started. And I reached out to him and he was amazing and agreed to be on the podcast. So we'll, we'll just introduce him first and then we'll dive into some questions about his book. So Michael, we're going to ask you the introductory questions. So first, just your, your name and pronouns. Sure. Michael Barakiva, he, him. Wonderful. What is your favorite book? I am still recovering from my third read of N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy, which um, rocked my world. The first time I encountered it and the second time I encountered it and the third time I encountered it. So I feel like this would be a great moment to, uh, you know, use this platform to um, perhaps support some less known voices and authors. And I hope we'll get the chance to do that. But I have to say, like, in an empirical world, I just marvel at the unbearable gorgeousness that is those books. Yeah. Oh, I just finished listening to, to the third book and it was... It was absolutely incredible. Yeah, um, I, I was talking to a friend of uh, last night. I had uh, dinner with my good friend Susie Egan's, and we were just talking about those books again. And, uh, and yeah, and, and just the, the scope and the way that the first book and the second book and the third book are all so different from each other, but are all uh, create this sort of orchestra of a trilogy that, um, you know, it's just amazing that our species is capable of creating such beauty. Yeah. And I mean, not to belabor the point too much, the fifth season was actually before Izzy and I started college. That was like a required like class reading was the fifth season. Oh my so, God. I don't think it was required, but the common it was, reading. Re- yeah. Um, they, they didn't like check in and make sure that we read it, but. <laughs> she did um, come and speak at the school, which was really she cool. She did. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so jealous. <laughs> I am a- I was at this like book fair. I was like speaking at a small panel and she was speaking there also. And there was like the room where the writers were all, you know, waiting. And then I turned and she was there. And I, I've never, I mean, I had dinner with Meryl Streep when I was a senior at Vassar College in Alma Mater, Mater that the three of us share. And I did not feel as starstruck as I did in the presence of NK Jemison. I just like, I was like, and then I didn't say anything. I just froze. <laughs> Yeah. So our second question, and I mean, maybe you gave us the answer. I'm not sure. Uh, who's your favorite author or just like an author you admire? Well, you know, let, just just to mix it up a little bit, I have been on a huge dreadnought kick, which is April Daniels, extraordinary trans protagonist, alternate present superhero. Is it you're nodding? Yes. Have you read it? No, but it sounds, I'm just nodding because it sounds very cool. It's, it's amazing. And the writing is so good. And I actually just did another podcast a few weeks ago with um, JP Der Bogosian, who's a queer Armenian um, uh, archivist. He's creating a queer Armenian library and started this podcast called This Book Saved My Life. And so he reached out to me. And so he got April on and I got to meet her on, through his podcast. And that was also very thrilling for me. 
Awesome. So this is more of a, a silly question, although we take it very seriously here, as our our podcast does have dragon in the title. Do you have a favorite dragon from any any story or um, from like anywhere? Okay, I will tell you a funny story about this. Um, so there is a green dragon called Venom Fang in the Lost Minds of Fandelver, which is a D&D campaign that my friend that I was just telling you about, Susie Agins, she's our dungeon master, and we started early in the pandemic. And I think, you know, two years later, the, the merry band of us finished this campaign. And one of the side quests is to, you can potentially encounter this green dragon. And my character, who's a, uh, a rogue bard and non-binary tiefling rogue bard, they, um, we like entered this town, this sort of, you know, desolate abandoned town. And there was a tower and they really wanted to climb it. And my party talked me out of it. And then later we found out that there was a green dragon there who would have most certainly party wiped us and we would all would have died. But I, we all have this like sort of running joke about like, oh, what is the encounter with Venom Fang? Maybe we would have become friends with Venom Fang. Maybe we would have become Venom Fang's pawns. So right now I would say Venom Fang, the green dragon who we did not encounter in the Lost Minds of Fandelver is my favorite dragon. Wonderful, that's amazing. Um, and our last intro question is just why why do you enjoy writing and like what do what do stories and like storytelling mean to you? Oh God, that's what a great question. And they're very different questions, at least for me. You know, I am I came to writing after I've been a theater person my whole life. So I directed plays in high school. I was a drama English double at Vassar. I went to Juilliard's directing program immediately thereafter. And have I've run theaters and founded theaters and I came to writing uh the year that I turned 30 I lost two very important women in my life one was Anne Imbri who was the chair of the Vassar College English department and one was the Pulitzer and Tony award-winning playwright Wendy Wasserstein and they were very dear to me and they were both brilliant writers and I had never thought of myself as a writer and after they died that year, writing was a way of remembering them and honoring them. I mean, and literally with Wendy, because I worked for Wendy for the last five years of her life, she was losing her vision. And so she would speak and I would type and read back to her what she had written. And so the act of writing sort of conjured her and made me feel like we were dialoguing. And as a theater person, the ability to be creative entirely on my own terms in the privacy of my own room felt thrilling and empowering. So that's what writing means to me. But the stories, I think, are the way that we process the world. So like when something traumatic happens to us or something extraordinary, I find that I can't, it's the moment that I can put it into a story that enough time has passed that I can start sort of making sense of it. And I think that's why we crave stories is because it is the way that we process everything that happens in our life. And unlike life, stories have structure and format and resolution. And we want that and we don't always get it but we can find it in stories and that is satisfying. I love that answer, especially just the, 
the way that those two people like influence your writing and, and that process. That's an amazing. Yeah. You know, before we started, I mentioned to you that I've just returned from my 25th reunion at Vassar and Anne has a beautiful little tree by the library and my favorite part of reunion. Oh, you know, it's like on the way to Raymond. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. There's a couple yeah. trees on that path, but I yeah. know those trees. And there's like a great little plaque for her. And I was talking to a bunch of people from my class and they were like, oh, we didn't know this. And they're all, they were all English majors who had studied with her. One or two were writers who actually said, uh, Nevin Martell, who's a, a food critic and writer in the DC area, who said, you know, I would have never had become a writer if I hadn't encountered Anne. So we all went over there and sort of paid tribute to her and shared some stories about her. And it was really uh, moving. Hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I know for me, like when I write, basically every character is a person who I've met or is based off of a person I've met. And like, I don't think I could write, not not that I'm like a published author and I've, I've done anything incredible yet, but like even the stuff that I have done, like I don't think I could have done it like without just the people who I've met in my life and, you know, have had relationships with. Yeah. Yeah. T- totally. And And also, you know, I didn't start writing until I was 30. So you're already ahead of me. And anybody who is writing um, is already doing it. You know, I think, I, th- I think that there is this enormous validation that one gets from being published. But of course, that is just an external thing and it has nothing to do with the quality or the importance of the work. I mean, for, for sure. I think maybe that's just being, being raised by Greek immigrants and (laughs) we have we need that external um but and maybe that's a great segue just to jump into your book though because I know I mean for me like one of there's not a lot of like books out there that I relate to like as a Greek person and like I've just been finding these books that I relate to as like someone who's part of the LGBTQ plus community so this for me even though it's it's Alec is Armenian. Everything is just so similar. I mean, even from just like small references to like, he makes a joke about like, you know, you can't always have your baklava and eat it too. And I'm pretty (laughs) sure I've heard my dad say the same thing. Um, But, but stuff like that. And then just like how the parents are portrayed and the, the Saturday school stuff, it just felt so like relatable to me. So I was curious, like, could you talk a little bit about like, how because you're you're Armenian and Israeli right yeah I was my mom is Armenian and my dad is Israeli I was born in Israel but we moved to the suburbs of New Jersey which uh is where I grew up and which was much scarier than Israel (laughs) Um, yeah and and I'm, I'm so happy to hear that you saw yourself in those things because of course there is a lot of cultural similarity between the Greeks and the Armenians between the food and the orthodox religion but one of the real joys of the response from my books are children, immigrants and children of immigrants from all over the world saying, oh, there's so much of this that is relatable to me. And, you know, when I first, uh, when I started working on those books, the family wasn't Armenian. And when I w- came back to them, the family were just, they were just boring white people. And when I came back to them, the book was so boring because that plot line had nothing going on. And when I w- sort of was brave enough to 
um, dip into my own lived experience and family history is when the book really animated. And, um, and, I'm, and I'm also glad about that Saturday school stuff because in fact, through a series of very weird events, I wasn't actually raised Armenian Orthodox. I was raised Lutheran. My mom was born Armenian Orthodox, attended a French Catholic school in Israel. And then when we moved to the States, converted to Lutheranism, I guess. So we, we were brought up Lutheran. And so to write those scenes in the Armenian Orthodox Church, I had to do a lot of research because that was not what my own experience was. I went to two years of Lutheran confirmation class before announcing myself probably agnostic at the age of 16. But I do have these traumatic memories we were the problems with being the only armenians in a german lutheran congregation is that we were always late and the service always started on time and then we always had to enter with a choir 10 minutes afterwards and it was so humiliating and it happened every time <laughs> in fact i joined the choir because i was like we're always entering with a choir why not just join them yeah that's so funny I never would have I never would have thought like you didn't grow up like within you know the the Armenian like Orthodox community wow um, oh, I, I mean it sounds yeah like the research you did apparently was incredible because it's it just reminded me of just going to to my own church like so just incredibly so what made you eventually like decide because you said it took you like a while to like become brave enough to like make the characters Armenian yeah um I think there's always, well, you know, first of all, I just had no idea how to write. I'd never taken a writing class. I still haven't taken a writing class. So there are so many things like um, Sarah Bronstein is an extraordinary novelist and a friend of mine from Vassar. She did JYA there when I was a senior. She was at Holyoke or Smith. I forget. I think Holyoke. And she's a great novelist. And when she read, this is like such a stupid example, but when she read the first draft of my first book, she was like, you know, you don't have to say he said or she said after every time somebody says something. You could also just give them like um, he picked up, you know, um, Alec picked up a cup of coffee and then we'll know he's the person who said it. And I was like, oh, that's such a good idea. Like, I felt so stupid. There are so many things I didn't know. So, um, but there's also, I think this was part of the transition from directing to writing is that with directing, you're incredibly intimate with actors, but it's a very private space. But when you're a writer, you have to be willing to be directly and indirectly intimate with strangers in a much larger public space. And so the idea of using my own experiences, which is of course central, I think, to most writers' processes one way or another, felt very dangerous and scary to me. And of course it still does. I've just learned how to cloak it a little bit better. Okay. I mean, kind of just keeping with this idea for a little bit more, is there anything, like, once you decided to make the characters Armenian, is there anything that you were, like, really excited to add in, like, about, like, any Armenian, like, traditions or, like, parts of your culture? Oh, yeah, totally. Well, <laughs> the food is huge. Like, food is a huge part of my life. And did you grow up in a cooking household, Peter? Yeah, I mean, my mom, she literally grew up in a diner. So, like, my grandfather... um, he he immigrated here. He fled from Greece during World War II. He was in Egypt for a while. He made his way here, um, and then he he was he was an illegal immigrant. So they, he was told he can either fight in Korea or leave. So he fought in Korea, and then he came back and he opened up a diner. 
so my my mom grew up in the diner and and we what, we cook and eat a lot <laughs> what where where is the diner it's in um it's in Mineola on Long Island sure so, because you know like as a Jersey boy Greek diners are like you know like yes. that's that's where we spent all the teenagers because we weren't cool enough to like do things we weren't supposed to be doing we were like went to diners at 10 o'clock and had Greek salads and french fries and cups of coffee until they kicked us out that's a staple I just I was just working on Cape Cod with people from all over the country and there's two Texans and I was like you got to go to the diner like skip yeah. the Greek restaurant diner totally um, totally and like a good spanakopita at a Greek diner is like that is as good as it gets yeah so I don't know who owns the diner now like we've we've kind of left it um and now like my mom is is a doctor and my dad's a lawyer and we're we got oh to do the whole education li- thing you are literally <laughs> living the immigrant dream yes. literally. <laughs> um but but yeah so like okay so the food was really important to add yeah, yeah. the food was huge and um and in this book in hold my hand the religion felt you know i've been really I, I don't, you know, I've been agnostic since I was 16, but I have been really struggling to reconcile the incredibly loving teachings of Jesus, which I find deeply moving, um, especially, you know, thinking about story that so much of Christianity uses parable as a storytelling, using uses story and parable as a teaching technique. Um, with so much of the vitriol from religious groups against members of the LGBTQIA plus community. And so I really wanted to write about that. And a smart young out person's attempt to reconcile those things with a smart, if ultimately limited religious figure who is genuinely caring um, and compromising. And And then the other thing, which of course I didn't quite have the language for, but I see so clearly now, is that because of the genocide committed by the Turks against the Armenian people between 1915 and 1921, because that genocide is unacknowledged, there is a fascinating intersectionality between erasure of queer people and the unacknowledgement of that genocide, which I had never thought about in my life until I started writing that book. And, and, and I find, you know, the book that I'm working on now is called These Precious Stones, and it's a multi-POV, contemporary, young adult, epic fantasy, queer protagonist um, extravaganza. And and I'm finding so much when I look at the science fiction, I mean, and I love that dragons are in the title of this podcast. And that, that was one of the questions because I grew up on science fiction and fantasy. And one of the most painful things to have to come to terms with in that genre is that the depiction of queer people in that genre is either villainous, like the entire decades of Disney movies, or there is just erasure. And And when things like Star Wars or fantasy, high fantasy books, when they choose not to include a single queer character, it is like choosing not to include a BIPOC character or uh, or somebody who does not identify as a cis male, that 
what you are implicitly saying is that this is not a natural thing. And if it were a natural thing, I would include it in this other world where our species exists. So that kind of erasure is deeply violent to me. And, and it is in some way, you know, in, in, in my psychic landscape, similar to the, the Turkish erasure of the Armenian genocide. That's a really incredible parallel that I've never thought about before. Yeah, um, and I, I wish I'd been yeah. smart enough to like think about that before I was writing it, but I only discovered it in the writing of it. I mean, that happens too, though. Like, as you write, you, you discover things. And it's totally. a really important process, yeah. Totally. That was I mean, another thing as like as a non-writer that I didn't understand. I thought that like writers like sat down and were like, and this is so stupid and naive because this is not how you direct. You know, you direct like you have an idea of what the story is going to be. And then you work with your collaborators and you discover things in rehearsal that surprise you all the time. I thought that like, oh, writers like wrote down on an index card the list of themes that was going to be in their book. And then they wrote the book and they were like, look, I've written the thing that I thought I was going to write about. And part of the joy of writing is, you know, I, I'm a heavy outliner. You can see the index cards behind me. Um, and I, 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 I'm a heavy outliner, but I also am totally delighted because the characters surprise me all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, it just reminds me so much of like my own writing process. Definitely. What about it specifically? Just, I feel like I, I started off with an outline. I didn't have like a lot of index cards like you do, um, but I wrote out like an outline and I was like, okay, this is like the theme for this chapter, the point, to, like the, the idea that I want to get out of it, like which characters arrive, like what the setting is. And then I kind of just found out as I was writing it, like it would shift a little bit and I would like, I would try to like fight back like <laughs> against what was happening naturally in the story. And I was I realized like the more that I wrote and like the further I got into it, like the the less that I fought and like tried to maintain like that original outline, the the better my writing was. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a great summary of the thing that I think we all feel, which is this push and pull and the, the need to be, that's what makes it so terrifying. Like the book that I'm working on right now, I have four different versions of it. And um, the first hundred pages are organized totally different in each of the four versions. And I have no idea which is the right way to sort of frame the rest of the story. No, and that I, eventually, I mean, it just, it figures itself out. So Yeah, that's right. That's right. You have to, I, I find that one of my favorite parts in the writing process is when, you know, I've been um, really blessed to work, I've worked with two editors. The first, Joy Peskin, who was a year above me at Vassar, which is how I met her. And the only reason I became a writer is because she said, oh, you should write a gay young adult novel. And then I worked for years with her on my first one, One Man Guy. And, um, and she was re also really instrumental in helping me figure out, uh, hold my hand. And this next one, which is because it's fantasy and Joy doesn't like genre so much, she hooked me up with Trisha de Guzman, who's also at FSG McMillan. And, um, and incredible it's the, the that process of working with an editor is really thrilling and mind opening and one of my favorite parts in the writing process is when I've handed a manuscript to them 
and they, you know, they're looking at it for a few months and I get to forget about it and I direct the play and I work on other things. And then I come back to it and I can sort of look at it as if somebody else has written it. And I'm, I have a ver I'm very critical in that way. And so I sort of invest, I think of myself as investigating, like what is in here that I didn't know was in here? What is in here that the writer didn't realize they had put in there? And how can I, you know, sort of bring that out and reveal it? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly what we do on the podcast. Like I, I will share, I, I wrote like my book, I shared it with Izzy and like we go chapter by chapter and like Izzy has just given me such amazing comments and like half the time, like I had no idea like the stuff that she said was even in there. And like, I know the writing, I mean, just as your writing got better, like with the help of the editor, like my writing would not be <laughs> nearly where it is without Izzy. So yeah, it's um, very intimate. Yeah. And in fact, I am, there's a writing podcast that I've been listening to called Writing Excuses, which is specifically for science fiction, fantasy and horror. And the hosts are amazing. And one of the, a few of the segments, they've referenced uh, alpha and beta readers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I had never thought about this, but of course I'm a theater person and I know the importance of having trusted colleagues into the final run in the rehearsal room and the value of previews and talking to audience members afterwards about what their experience was. And so a year and a half ago, I did it and I did, did this process again, and that's just finishing up now, which is that I sent a manuscript out to 20 or 30 people who all volunteered. Many of them were people I knew, but some of them were just readers of mine from social media um, who responded to the call to action. And then I created a Google survey for them with really specific questions. And there's always a section which is like, tell me anything you want to tell me about the book. But depending on where I am in the process, there are like eight or 10 questions that I really need specific answers for. And using these readers is extraordinary. And inevitably they will surprise me with their insights and wisdom and perception and responses. Yeah, absolutely. So I want, Izzy, you have a great question. I feel like I, we've talked a little bit about um, the Armenian Greek and church stuff, and I might get back to those, but Izzy also has a question. Are you, if you're ready, Izzy? Yeah, no, it's definitely related because um, it all ties together, but I was really interested in how one of the central themes of the book is, of course, relationships between teenagers um, navigating, you know, a gay relationship, and it's Alec, the protagonist, first, you know, well, first relationship at all, and it's getting to the point where things are getting serious. So I was really interested in, you know, what kind of process or how you approached, you know, such a complicated topic. And especially, you know, when they're getting to the point in their relationship where they're talking about, you know, serious things and potentially embarking, embarking on, you know, sexual experiences with each other and how yeah. you manage that because it can it ties in with a lot of, you know, different things. Totally. And yeah, it's, it's such a great question. And there are so many different ways to rotate, rotate it and respond to it. So <laughs> the, um, the beginning is that when Joy and I were working on these books, I explained to her it was really important for me that there be scenes in which the boys make out because when a protagonist or a genre is defined by the character's sexual orientation, it feels like to not give their sex lives a life of its own is doing it a disservice. 
So it, um, and, and furthermore, I was getting really frustrated, you know, uh, Will and Grace being a really great example that as gay stories were entering mainstream culture, they were being neutered. Like there was a terror of us seeing two men kissing. There was a terror around that. So we could have gay characters as long as they weren't actually sexually active in any kind of ways. And it feels like, uh, it felt like a great disservice. And I'm thinking about um, Glenn Weldon who hosts Pop Culture Happy Hour uh, on NPR. They did an episode on um, Heartbreaker, Heartstopper. What is that? Heartstopper. Heartstopper, which I loved and wept my way through you know, just cried through the entire thing, just like with Fire Island, which I also, you know, like the, my totally irrational tears at all queer representation makes me think about how starved I am for more of it and how little of it I have had in my life. But he was the only person on the episode who was like a little critical of it. And the thing that he said really resonated with me because again, the the series is amazing and heartfelt and beautiful, but it's not sexy and they and they are young and so i get it but like nobody is really um and so again it felt to me like as a queer man writing about queer boys i wanted their queerness to really resonate and so we uh, joy and i made the decision that there would be basically no cursing there would be no alcohol there would be no drugs like we sort of took all i thought of them are of like our rated pg-13 chips like we had like, we took all of them and we put them just all to be able to have a few sex scenes so that everything else would be as unthreatening as possible um, to, to our straight readers um, and hopefully welcoming to them because of course, you know, you want allies to be reading the book as well as the uh, people depicted in the material. So there was that. And then specifically with Hold My Hand, the central scene in Hold My Hand, which was the, the seed, which was like the heart, is the scene in the middle of the book. And it used to be the first scene, and then it was the last scene. And I kept on, I, we just, Joy and I knew it was the heart of the book. And then the story sort of built around it. Is the, I think it's the best scene I've ever written in my life. I just, like, I just think it's so funny. And it's these two boys trying to um, figure out how to have sex for the first time. And their awkwardness um, and um, adorability and frankness and, and use of Armenian food as metaphor <laughs> is, I don't know, it just, it just feels to me like, you know, like, like the whole thing of the book sort of wrapped up, you know, in um, phyllo dough and then um, brushed with melted butter. So, so it's fun. And, um, and then I'm also thinking about how I did this incredible book panel at McNally Jackson, the bookstore in downtown Manhattan. And the people on the panel were amazing. It was Adam Silvera, Becky Albertalli, who, you know, of course wrote um, Love, Simon. Um, well, wrote Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda, which is the book that Love, Simon, and then the spinoff Love, Victor, were based on. Um, Dahlia Adler, just, and we're all queer YA novelists. and. There was a question about sex. And then that's all we talked about for an hour was like, how do we write sex scenes and what kind of sex scenes do we think about including and not? And, um, and it, is a, it is a really hard thing, especially in a society like ours that has so much shame around sex to figure out how to do, um, you know, of course that is amplified when you're 
in a queer world. So to figure out how to depict it in a way that is realistic, but also sex positive and celebratory, because there is, you know, all of us who are queer have so much trauma to sort through because of the way we have been made to feel about our attractions. That was a really long answer to that <laughs> question. I hope, um, I hope I got it. Yeah, no, that was really great. I definitely think um, there is a push and pull between like centering sex and then also centering like, what does it mean to be in a relationship and in relationship with someone and where does sex fit in with that? Yeah. And you can it, see them negotiating um, the protagonist Gallic and Ethan figuring out like, if we don't have sex, are like Alex doubts about it and like, am I being a good boyfriend and everything really, um, I'm sure are really related, relatable for a lot of people. I, I hope so. And, you know, I'm thinking a, a dear friend of mine told me they couldn't finish that book because the anxiety that they felt as, you know, one of the characters has had sex before and the other one has not. And the character who's sexually experienced would like to have sex and wants to be able to talk about it in a way that is sex positive and not pressuring. But this friend of mine said, it just, you know, like I was in that situation where somebody, somebody I was dating who I really liked, I felt like they were pressuring me to have sex before I was ready. And the book made me too anxious. I had to put it down. And, 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 uh, and I get that, you know, like any, any response, any authentic response to the material is an authentic response, but I'm interested in the awkward and the hard and, um, you know, the, the tricky things, which is like, well, how do you talk about that in a relationship? Yeah, no, it was a wonderfully awkward scene. And I don't think I can, I can look at pita bread the same way. It was... <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel that way about kebabs. <laughs> okay. I have another question, just keeping with like the characters and their relationship. Um, Izzy and I were talking about this the the theme of like forgiveness in the book and ultimately yeah. like Alec needs to I mean he I think he decides to forgive Ethan to some degree and like we I mean Izzy and I I think we feel a little bit differently on whether or not they actually get back together at the end um, hmm. and whether or not they should get back together totally. um, so I'm curious like what your thoughts are about that and like you know do you do you are you happy with like Alex's decision at the end and like where he gets to as a character and in that whole situation god it's it's so great and I'd love to hear how where the two of you disagree because I am you know I'm interested in these areas of discomfort and um, healthy conflict um I have you know it's very interesting a lot of my readers are very angry about the way that that book ends <laughs> Um, and they are not shy about expressing that in their Goodreads reviews, <laughs> um, which is also fine for me because, you know, I have been a theater artist my whole life and I, I like the dialogue. Again, any authentic material, any authentic response to the material is an authentic response. And I have a lot of feelings about it. I think the, the primary feeling is that many and, and many of my readers who are high school or college age, and I remember this about being that age, it's much easier to have a binary morality when you are young and you think somebody did something bad and that should be the end of it. They should not be forgiven. And I have never cheated on anybody that I've been with, obviously. I'm just not wired that way. 
but of course I've done horrible things to people and I've had people do horrible things to me. And the real process of forgiveness, um, you know, Shakespeare's romances like Winter's Tale and Pericles, uh, forgiveness is, uh, and The Tempest are, are really at their hearts. I, I wanted to write about that because I had just experienced a heartbreaking betrayal myself. And writing the book was part of how I learned to forgive. So that felt important to me. And, 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 and furthermore, and another thing, it never occurred to me that Alec and Ethan wouldn't get back together. And I wish when I was writing the book, I had written the version in which they hadn't, just so that I could see if I liked that version or not. And there's nothing, you know, some people, um, masochists and sadists, clearly, have asked me to write a third book in the series. And I don't, I, I don't know what that book would be. Well, I do, I, the only, when I think about that, the only thing I can imagine, which is probably the reason I would never write it, is them running into each other 10 years later. Um, and who would, you know, and like, you know, they would have broken up a few months, late, you know, like, like high school romances do, and then they would have gone their separate ways. And, and maybe that would be interesting for me to write. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I, I would, it has, you know, it would have to be about more than just that. But I don't need to write a third book in the story. But I do wish I had written that ending so I could have just sat with it and seen what that was. But I guess I feel like we have so few happy queer romance stories that I didn't even want to entertain that. What, what do you, what, where do you two disagree? I'm dying to know. Tell me. I definitely was upset that they got back together. I, How and come? I think, How come? I, I think I kind of agree with Alec like at first where he's like oh Ethan has betrayed me in such a such a dramatic way like how can I trust him and then like the I think the second lie too where you know oh, he oh he god. says that oh god oh god yeah oh, no, I know oh it's horrible so it was just rough and I understand like I don't I don't think they should end their relationship entirely I think like they could be amazing friends and um you know still benefit from each other's presence I'm just not sure getting back together in the way that they did, like at the moment that they did. I don't think that was the ending that I wanted. I think I maybe a little bit more time would have been better potentially. Sure. And I think you've in our emails, you've mentioned like, Oh, you should read um, one man guy. And I think what's been keeping me back from that is like, I just don't want to see more of Ethan this, oh my God, this I... soon after, <laughs> after reading <laughs> this book. I totally forgot that you haven't read one man guy. And that actually makes me so happy because when Joy and I were working on this, we really wanted to be like a standalone sequel that did not require one man guy to enjoy it as a book on its own. And so when people tell me that that's their experience, I feel really happy, even, yeah. you know, yeah. So that's, great. I mean, and this, this worked amazingly. Like, I mean, you have references to it and like, I think I, I don't need the other book in order to enjoy this one. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely struggled with the, the Ethan and Alec, relationship a little bit more like this book to me i loved it so much more for for the the church conversations and the armenianness of it um and i love that i love that it is like a queer armenian um and i i find his struggle and like the challenges that he goes through like really interesting i just i want a little bit more time before he gets back 
together with Ethan if that's what he does. Yeah, I, re- <laughs> I really appreciate that. And I will only say that One Man Guy is worth reading. You will fall in love with Ethan and One Man Guy, but it's worth reading because um, Stuff Grapevine Leaves plays such a huge role in that book that, um, you know, your Dolma-loving Armenian self, will, uh, Greek self, will appreciate that. <laughs> okay, I will read it at some point. I just needed a little bit of space. I get it. I but... get that. And then Izzy, like, what did you think of, of the ending? Yeah, I thought, um, I, by the end of the book, I was sold in that they should get back together. Maybe not immediately the way that they did, but that they were both at a point where it would be, you know, not, you know, an unbelievable choice um, to make and that they were both change, growing as people to, so that the problems that had come up that caused them to, you know, break up because the whole cheating and everything was symptoms of problems that had been arising between Mm -hmm. them and in their own you know insecurities in themselves and that because it was clear that they were both working on themselves a bit um I thought it made sense that they got back together and that I was sold on it being you know the right ending by the time I got to the end but I was very conflicted up to that point because of Ethan but um I, I also think- do think Alec being his age, I think at, reacted a little bit reactionarily um, and kind of blew off his top a little bit more than maybe he would have if he'd had more experience in relationships and had been more willing to like stop and talk things through instead of storm out the way that he did. But that's also something that, you know, just comes with experience. I mean, I guess. I mean, I'm much older than me. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I'm still waiting for that experience to come. Um, well, I, I, I love. I mean, I love. I love hearing both of your thoughts about it, and I continue thinking about it. And I also think about another thing that I think about is that should I have written it as a different kind of betrayal if it were not cheating because there are lots of other ways to betray people. I know, having been betrayed and betrayed people in many other ways. Um, I don't actually betray people that much, nor have I been betrayed that much. It's just a fun thing to say. But um, <laughs> but that's another thing I think about. But, you know, this is, you know, it's this, this is the fun thing about writing. It's out in the world when you think about all these things and um, and then you try to learn and figure out how you'll do it different and better in the next one. Yeah, I will I also... say in these precious in these precious stones, there is a. A great betrayal. I and mean, then it, it is not sexual, but it is. Uh, it is it is amazing. It's so horrible, and I and and also it has to be forgiven. And I think and I'm not and I'm almost there. I think I'm I think I'm getting there. And my beta readers have given me like one or two great ideas about how to just, you know, how to just how to just really earn that ending. I'm sorry, you were saying. Yeah, I guess I'm also more inclined to you know like root for the happy ending and also root for people trying towards forgiveness more that's just more of my personality Um, moving (laughs) but um I also did think the kind of betrayal in this book with the cheating the fact that it was Ethan cheating on Alec with a college student who's much older it's like it would be different if he had been cheating on him with a high schooler and the the power difference and also the fact that it was his previous ex oh yeah a little bit different like it was not an even playing field at all with the way that the events happened either the previous relationship that Ethan had had and then being confronted with his ex again 
I gave them a little bit more leeway for that because it's not, you know, the, quite the same kind of circumstances as just him meeting some dude at a bar and being like, aha, I'm going to make this choice. To- totally. And, you know, our exes have enormous power over us. I won't say more. <laughs> and I think maybe that's something that we'll, we'll learn more about when we do read One Man Guy. Because I, I oh, think Remy's yeah. more important than that. So, or not more important, but is more present. Well, he's, he's, his absence is a presence. Hmm. Yeah. We, well, yeah, we'll, we'll need to read that at some point. Um, and then we can do another podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I know we're getting close. Yeah. Um, so I guess let's, let's just wrap this up then. I wanted to ask you, what does being Armenian mean to you? Because that was like the whole essay thing. But I think that's a, too big of a question for now. Um, now that we need to like wrap up. <laughs> well, you know, of course I'll answer but... it. Uh, I think I think what it me- I think what it means in how it manifests is that accountability is an incredibly important value for me, um, and because I come from a people whose genocide has not been acknowledged. I, and, and it feels crazy that it's taken me so long to sort of be able to put into words, but I've only recently sort of figured it out that like, from like, I'm sorry I didn't call you back is a count of accountability to like, I'm going to own the mistake that I did then. That, and, you know, just, just like people owning things, I think is the most direct manifestation of being Armenian. And at the same time, I want Armenian identity to be so much Armenian identity is so much richer than the unacknowledged genocide. And I want to make sure that people know that there is great joy and culture and food, that it is not just an identity that is a reaction to being victimized, that there is so much more uh, thousands of years of traditions to draw upon. Yeah, I think Alex says like exactly that in the book too. How embarrassing, because of course I have no memory of that. (laughs) So that's hilarious. But yeah, we'll we'll end it there. Thank you so much, Michael, for for talking with us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael. Peter and Izzy, what a joy! And I feel so happy to be part of this, you know, Vassar continuum, um, part of this Daisy chain. Yeah, I mean, they told us our Vassar career starts after we graduate, so proof proof right here. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Sorry. That's that's my Greek mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no boundaries, no borders. <laughs>